Hello. 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 This is Dr. I. And this is Dr. Joe. And we are on the window this Saturday at noon. We welcome our listening audience to join us today and, and hear some of the discussion that we have planned for you. But, you know, this is what they used to call Indian summer. And as I look out the window today, it's a beautiful day. And do you know where Indian summer came from, Dr. Joe? I, I, I don't. I hope it's not one of the um, stereotypical titles and labels that's used to demean a group of people as opposed to something positive. So where did that term come from? Well, you are right. It was a term given to a time of year when our Native American brothers and sisters were seen um, harvesting their crops and putting them away for the winter months. And yes, that's exactly where it came from. And um, today, it is the time of year when you prepare for winter. Um, But yes, it was a name given to our Native American brothers and sisters who used to take that corn and maize and whatever else they grew out in the fields and stored it for days when they were going to need it during the winter. So the message to our audience is, is 2022 is coming up very soon. And so all of those things on your to-do list for 2021, like cleaning out the garage and the basement Mm -hmm. and taking your um, belongings that you don't want anymore to the Salvation Army of the Goodwill, now is the time to do it. Don't procrastinate because New Year's will be here before you know it. Well, for me, this is my birth month, the month of September, and so it's a time of reflection for me. I celebrate all month long, but this is the beginning of my new year. So I reflect, I look back and see what worked and what didn't work. I'm very grateful, I'm very prayerful, and I also use my birth month as a time to make appointments for all of my annual and regular checkups. And so I would Good idea. encourage others to do that and, and to change the... the um, the, the all the the little batteries around my home for the smoke detector and that type of thing. That's on my to do list anyway. Mm-hmm. That's a wake up call that the year is ending and get your get your stuff together. And so for those of us who are in central Ohio, when we talk about winter coming, winter's a good time to cocoon. That's what I've realized to try to make some positives out of negatives. But you know, we have listeners from all around the country. We do. And we are very appreciative of that. So whenever we talk about our central Ohio focus, please know that we believe that much of what we discuss has relevance throughout the country. And as we look throughout the country in the past several weeks, for some reason my eyes keep focusing on the state of Texas. Isn't that something? I have friends in Texas, as, as as most people probably do, and every now and then I send them a note along with my friends in Florida and say, what the heck is going on down there? It's crazy down there, and we're going to be talking about uh, a situation that's occurring down there with legislation um, that impacts women all over the nation, and we've got someone here today that 
I really do like her first name. <laughs> it reminds me of someone that I care about. But Joe, Dr. Joe, would you like to introduce our guest today? I will. And when we say that these issues impact women all over the country, we don't mean to imply for a moment that men and families and everyone um, will not be impacted by the discussion we're going to have today. So for those of you who are thinking about all of the things that have happened in Texas recently, there there have been um, voting rights or lack of rights issues. We'll be talking about those next week. Uh, my understanding is that there are currently Haitians and other immigrants who are um, cubbyhole, if you will, in Texas. We'll be talking about that soon. But today we'd like to focus on the issue of reproductive rights and we just couldn't think of a better organization to turn to than the Planned Parenthood organization and so we are delighted to have as our guest here today Iris Harvey who's president and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio and Planned Parent Advocates of Ohio and so we would like to discuss not only what's going on in Texas and how it impacts the country but just in general the work of Planned Parenthood and so the, so that we're not just presenting one side if you will of an issue we have commentary um, from from others as well in the form of statements but Iris Harvey thank you for joining us today on the window Thank you, Dr. Williamson and Dr. Cooper. It is wonderful to, to join with you today. I thank you for the invitation. And I'm also excited to speak to your audience, but also to you about Planned Parenthood. Um, and as I was looking at our bios, we have so much in common. have done so many things professionally that I'm hoping this is just the beginning of many chats in, in different venues and on different topics. We hope so, too. And, and we know that we only have an hour here today. There's so much that we could talk about. So you're right. We will continue the dialogue. And we want to talk about your very stellar background as well. But first... We think it's important. On the window, we try to provide a lens through which people can first learn and understand before they form their own opinions and judgments or whatever. We oftentimes just need the basic information. So Planned Parenthood is often associated with abortion. Is that what Planned Parenthood does? Tell us about the organization. Great. Well, thank you for the, your question. You know, Planned Parenthood of Great Ohio, we've provided health care to Ohio communities for over 90 years. Uh, we have 17 health centers across the state, and our goal is to be mostly located in communities of need that are, for instance, underserved with a low presence of primary care providers, um, given the needs of the community. So what we do is we provide comprehensive reproductive health care, including life-saving cervical and breast cancer screenings. I think it was Ms. Williamson, Beth Williamson, who said this is the time she gets her checkups, right? So your pap smear, your, your um, breast exam, uh, but we also provide a full range of birth control and contraceptive me methods, uh, testing and treatment of STIs and testing and counseling for HIV, we have a great service line, um, online 24-7 appointment scheduling, live, um, uh, live customer contact services, we offer telehealth, and uh, our primary care services include wellness exams, screening and uh, treatment and counseling for hypertension and diabetes, and gender affirming care. So we do a lot of things, including providing safe and, and legal abortion. And, um, you know, health equity is key to our care. 
So our primary patients include people with low incomes, people of color, uh, mostly women, but also about 20% of our patients are men. We serve L- the LGBTQ uh, patient community, and the most important thing is that our doors are open regardless of immigration status and whether or not a person has insurance. So that's the short version of what we do. <laughs> that's uh, exhaustive. That's an exhaustive list. Can we can we break that down a little bit? So when you when we talk about regular examinations for women's reproductive health, what types of exams are we talking about in services? Okay. Well, we're, we're talking about the uh, basics that you would expect uh, when you go in to have a gynecolo- gynecological exam. Uh, so we're checking your reproductive system. We do based on the timing. We'll do a pap test. We do a manual. Our clinician will do a breast, exca- uh, breast exam and screening to see if there are any lumps or any problems. Uh, if we think that there is an issue, uh, there are some procedures that we can do in-house, but we will refer a person uh, to get a mammogram. Uh, we do. We have the full range of birth controls, every type of uh, birth control pill, but also we provide uh, the um, methods including long-acting reversible contraception, the IUDs, and a variety of areas that um, you know, people get an opportunity to make a choice about what fits their lifestyle and their reproductive uh, plan. But we also have a large number of people who come in and they want to be tested for uh, STI, sexually transmitted infections. Uh, also, many people come in, they want to be tested for um, HIV. And so we do rapid testing, we do treatment, we do counseling. Uh, and uh, the other areas uh, that we do again is, and this is why it's so important to have your wellness exam. Uh, so we take a complete family history with the wellness exam. We do some screening to, to make sure that people are feeling, you know, um, mentally healthy and if not what type of referrals can we make for them uh we talk about lifestyle and behavioral um issues that might be addressed we give um right now we're really focusing on screening for hypertension and diabetes we want to get our community that we serve we want if they are on that route we like to get them in a pre-stage because you don't have to move directly into hypertension and diabetes if you have those conditions you can modify them with nutrition and exercise and just a healthy lifestyle so we do a lot of conversation uh, with our patients around that Uh, we also provide gender affirming care which includes uh, hormone replacement therapy for people who are reaffirming and uh, transitioning, uh, you know, their gender identity. So it's a full range of of services. Uh, Some are very targeted to reproductive health, uh, but others also are targeting a more general health, right? Because if you think about uh, a pregnancy, you need to be healthy before and you need to be healthy after, right? So we go through all the stages. And, of course, we provide safe and legal abortion, uh, which also includes surgical abortion as well as medication abortion. We're going to spend 
quite a bit of time talking about abortion, but, but I'm actually blown away. I know that Planned Parenthood does more than abortion, but I'm actually blown away at the range of services you described today. So a, f- a few more questions about that. You mentioned insurance. Does someone have to have medical insurance to use Planned Parenthood services? No, you do not have to have um, insurance, but what I would say is that um, since we are first and foremost a health care provider, that indeed we do accept all insurances. We are especially uh, accepting of, of Medicaid insurance. Many of our patients who are low income uh, use Medicaid, and as you know, you cannot often find a private physician who will take Medicaid. and, and so we take Medicaid, we take Medicare, we take um, the uh, Obamacare. If you've gotten care on the marketplace, we'll take employer-sponsored care. And for people who have uh, don't have any of those benefits, we work with them. We don't send anybody away because they can't pay. We look at what are options to help them get the services that they need. And, you know, some of that is uh, the kindness and and generous of donors who want to make sure that people who have a need uh, can get the care. Um, Iris, this is the other Iris talking now. (laughs) Um, Hi. Hi. Um, How did Planned Parenthood begin and when? Okay, well, Planned Parenthood began about... uh, Literally about a hundred and four years ago, okay, in New York, uh, from the the genesis of our organization, right, uh, with Margaret Sanger, who was a strong uh, supporter and advocate for a woman having the opportunity to make a choice about pregnancy and uh, to also prevent an unintended pregnancy. And over time, the organization built around our health center system, and uh, we have been going strong, as I said, in Ohio. Uh, We've been here for over 90 years. That's information that's impressive, given all of the changes that the nation has gone through over the last hundred years. I'm I'm pleased to know that. Um, And certainly the culture about women and having children has changed over that that span of time, hasn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, the um, the the we see that number one well let me start with the access to birth control, right, has been a phenomenal thing for women. It gave them the freedom to plan families, you know, and there are different times when you, you're ready to have an addition to your family and different times when you're not. It opened the door for, because of that facing, it opened the door for people to, com- women to complete their college education or to go on for some type of advanced education. It made it possible uh, for women to open, to enter the workforce and to have the freedom uh, to be employed in different ways. So I like to think of, you know, the, the birth control pill as one method of being a major economic stimulus. As a matter of fact, if you think back to the um, 1970s, uh, when more and more women were using birth control, it had a major impact 
on the um, productivity and, and the gross domestic product of the country. So it wasn't economic stimulus because it did what? It put people like you and I in a different posture of what we could achieve with our lives and what um, opportunities were available. How was Planned Parenthood funded? Planned Parenthood is funded, as I've said, uh, we are first and foremost a health care provider. And so from that standpoint, uh, we accept uh, a variety of insurances. So all health care providers uh, provide their services, uh, and they are reimbursed through some type of an insurance uh, process. So we are uh, we're accepting of Medicaid, Medicare insurance. We're accepting of um, employer-sponsored insurance, and we're also um, accepting of... Um, of the Obamacare. We also have um, a number of, not in Ohio so much, but um, we do also receive state and federal grants, uh, which in Ohio we have um, often been eliminated from that. A good example would be uh, Title X uh, for 20 years we provided service through the Title X program, which as many of your listeners know, is the national family planning service for people who need assistance to access birth control and uh, reproductive health um, you know, care. And so we've provided that. Uh, and we also, also invite our generous donors uh, to also contribute. So traditional, like your hospital and uh, your doctors, but also like other not-for-profits would, uh, you know, have funding from donors and supporters and grants. So uh, we want to, to stress to our audience, being, being female ourselves, Dr. I, we want to stress the importance of the services that you're talking about. I happen to know several people, actually one of them male, but I, I know several people who are dealing with late-stage grants, breast cancer. And I don't pretend to be a physician, but my understanding is that breast cancer is, is one of the cancers that the earlier caught the better in terms of ultimate positive outcomes. Is that correct? That absolutely is correct. The, the earlier you find any cancer, the more likely you are to um, be able to have a cure and to go into remission. So I would agree with that. We want to ask you some more specific questions, but, but before we do, we told our listeners that we wanted them to know about you. So if I can pull from the very impressive bio um, that, that we have here with us in the studio today. You weren't initially in healthcare, it appears. You were initially working within the academic environment before you came to Planned Parenthood. You were at Kent State University here in Ohio. You were the Vice President for University Relations, the Chief Strategist, advising the university on advancing the brand, image, and reputation of the organization, highlighting the economic impact on Ohio communities. You also have private sector experience with Citigroup. You were CEO of Market Strategies and Solutions, which was a consulting firm you founded and operated for almost a decade while living in Japan. You have also been in Ohio for nearly a decade. 
you volunteered on a number of organizations on their boards, um, including on Planned Parenthood. You were on the board of directors of the Planned Parenthood Federation of America, the Planned Parenthood Global Advisory Board, an inaugural member of the Columbus Women's Commission. You're a Fulbright Scholar, a Ford Foundation Scholar. You have an undergrad degree in business administration and an MBA degree from the University of South Carolina. I'm sorry, from USC, the University of Southern California. You have a doctorate in education from the George Washington University. That's impressive by any stretch. I think that's every degree that they offer, isn't it? I think so. So what was it that compelled you personally to get involved in the work you do with Planned Parenthood? Well, let me say this. Um, I would say, like many young women, I used Planned Parenthood, you know, in my late teens and during my college years. But as I went through my career, when the opportunity came to serve on the board and then to consider taking a CEO position. You know, that's a, a big um, investment in, in your career and in service. And I, I wanted to, I thought to myself, what is the really personal connection? And so um, one of the ways that I look at this I'm sorry, I'm hearing music. Is that all right? Yes, we're going to take a break in just a moment. In fact, why don't we pause you right now, take a quick break, and then we'll be back on the window. Okay, I'll be right here. We are back on the window with our guest, Iris Harvey, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio and Planned Parent Advocates of Ohio. We were just talking to her about her own stellar, very diverse background and how she ended up doing this work. And you were sharing with us that you used Planned Parenthood services as a younger woman. Yes, I did. And as I um, had this opportunity come to me, one of the things I thought about was a story that's very personal as the story of Evelyn and Bill. And Evelyn and Bill were two 14-year-old teens, and they did what sometimes happens with teens. They had unprotected sex. And as you can imagine, uh, Evelyn got pregnant. And this happened at a time when there were very few options. Uh, They were shamed. Their parents were shamed. And the solution was that they both drop out of school, get married, and go on with their life. And so at 15, Evelyn had her child. Evelyn was my grandmother, right? And the way I saw it, Evelyn and Bill should have left the hospital with this grand baby who was my mother and maybe moved on to live happy ever after having had that experience. But instead, they didn't leave with any type of counseling about contraceptives or, you know, how to prevent a pregnancy or how to plan for it. So 11 months later, Evelyn and Bill were back in the hospital having another child. And this time, it did not work out well. Evelyn died in childbirth, and she had a child that had incredible trauma in the birth and had cognitive issues the rest of his life. And when I put that context about my own family history and what it meant from generation to generation, and I think about what this means in today's time frame of infant mortality, maternal mortality, and how, you know, the numbers are almost as bad now as they were then. I thought, this is the fight. This is 
a mission, this is a commitment that I could make and perhaps add value to because it's so deeply in my heart. So that was part of the decision-making. Iris, I can relate to that. Um, When I was a freshman in college, one of my um, dorm girlfriends um, went out on a date and um, a very unfortunate uh, act for her. She was mm-hmm. forced to have sex that night. That's called rape. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, when it was uh, determined that she was pregnant and she's just turned 18, um, and this goes back to the 70s, we had to all come together, her friends, chip in money to get her out of this state that we were in to another state to go to an unlicensed, unknown source of of um, ending her pregnancy. Yeah. And unfortunately for her, um, there were some mistakes made, and she was never able to have children again. And I will say, too, that I know stories of men who, unfortunately, were also sexually assaulted, raped, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have, among the emotional and physical scars from that, they didn't have to deal with the the horror of a pregnancy resulting from that. Right, right, sure. And probably didn't have anyone to turn to because the other issue is that they could have had... um, sexually transmitted infection or HIV. So you're, you're absolutely right. It's a tragedy. Now, thank Sorry you for sharing story. your family story. I, you, you mentioned in your tragic situation that there was still a mother and a father involved. I can remember when I was in high school, if a young girl got pregnant, suddenly you, you never saw her again. If it was an unplanned pregnancy, she disappeared. She might have still been right. in town, but what you heard was that she went to stay with Aunt Martha. Mm-hmm. You heard nothing mm-hmm. at all. The, the young man and mm-hmm. we never heard anything about, as far as we know, the yeah. young man went on with life uninterrupted. Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting point, because in my family story, we're talking now about a young African-American male who is now 16 years old, a high school dropout with two infant children under one years of age. I can tell you that my grandfather's life was sealed right then, Right. He had, you know, he worked in sweatshops for the most of his life to raise his his two orphan children or motherless children. My mother never knew her mother, right? And it guided so much of how she loved me and protected me. So it's very complex, right? And it's it wasn't really even a topic, I don't think, in health classes for no. preteens of how you how babies were created it was just like skipped over and um you know looking back on on the years i spent in formal education i would have to say that it appears that uh health information regarding reproduction um was almost non-existent and it almost is thank you for making that observation as well 
let me tell you, one thing I'm really proud of, and it's the thing that, you know, every day we have a smile about it, but uh, we are also nationwide the largest provider of factual, medically accurate, age-appropriate sex education. And in Ohio, we are the only state in the country that has no prescribed curriculum for sex education. And it doesn't have any, you are two very credentialed women, right? It has no credentialing for who teaches sex education. And so what actually happens is the state is supportive only of, um, uh, I'm sorry, of um, abstinence only until marriage among young people. And, you know, there we want young people to get to an age of responsibility and understanding before they had sex, but sometimes they don't, right? And in that case, they need to know how to protect themselves, how to have consent, you know, how to have autonomy over their body. And so sex education is still very deficit in uh, this country and especially in this state. I'm really proud that we do provide sex education. We have a wonderful evidence-based curriculum that we work with schools. We're in, we're in some of the Columbus schools. We're across the state with sex education. We um, work in Columbus uh, for instance, with Celebrate One, uh, we have a peer-to-peer program, so we're trying to do two things in working with that program, prevent teen pregnancies, which often have the highest rate of infant mortality, and um, also to, uh, to to protect the teen pregnancy and uh, infant mortality. Uh, we work with uh, uh, Nationwide Children's uh, on providing life skills, uh, to young people, you know, leadership and communication, all of those things are often tied to your personal identity. So you're absolutely right. We are doing the wrong thing uh, as, a, as a state in not providing people with both the information to make informed decisions and the opportunity to understand why they should wait, right? And Often parents don't know how to have that sex talk. <laughs> I remember my mom sent me to the wife for my first part of you, the sex talk. Uh, but that's where the conversation should start. So one of the other things we do do is we provide a parent circle to help them learn how to talk about sex with their kids. And that's so important. For, for, my, for my Christian friends, I will say, too, that oftentimes Christians express the the sentiment that sex education should not be taught in the schools because it involves sex. Sex education involves body parts that got put on each one of our bodies. And so why would we not rely on informed experts to teach our children? You're right, in the home, oftentimes parents don't know, or it's an uncomfortable conversation, or it's a Mm -hmm. one-way conversation. They're comfortable talking about it, but not comfortable in hearing about it if their child would would come home and share with them. And what we don't want is for our children or our teenagers or even our adults to learn on the playground from others who are as uninformed as they are. And it's kind of crazy when you think about it, um, keeping information away from adolescents. Uh, At least when I was a preteen, if you told me something, I I mean, if you said, I can't talk to you about that, that just made me more determined to find out (laughs) what's going on, what's in that box. Where are you going that you can't tell me? What's that about? Um, and so I think that that whole strategy of it doesn't exist, we're not going to talk about it, backfired. 
Well, some of our oh, biblical characters, too, needed sex education. There's a whole lot of knowing <laughs> up in there. You know, somebody do somebody. And so, yeah. Okay, I'm getting way out of line yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So let's, right, let's go right. back and, and ask and ask <laughs> our expert a few more questions. So let's talk more specifically about the lightning rod topic of abortion. And, and let's start with some, some very basic education and some terms. Can you help us understand what it means to be pro-choice and what it means to be pro-life? Okay, well, that's a very interesting topic. And, um, you know, first I would say labels like pro-choice and pro-life don't really reflect the complexity of how most people actually think about and feel about reproductive health care and abortion or how we should respect the real-life decisions that people and families have to make, right? So um, from the standpoint of trying to define the two, um, when we think about being pro-choice, Uh, Generally, people who identify or or say that they're pro-choice, they believe that everyone has uh, the basic human right to factual information about reproductive health care and to decide if, when, and how to have children to to provide a start a family. And so uh, most people, when they say they're pro-choice, they're telling you that they believe it's okay for them to make independent personal decisions about family planning, including the ability to choose abortion as an option for terminating a pregnancy. And that's even if you wouldn't choose an abortion for yourself, right? They're talking about their personal body autonomy. So a person who is pro-choice, from what you're saying, doesn't necessarily have to be so-called pro-abortion, correct? Well, a person, um, right, personally, they might not choose it, but they believe that you have the right to make a decision of what is best for you and your family. Okay, and for those then who call themselves pro-life, what is usually their opinion, if you will? Well, you know, that's, that's an interesting one because if you really think about it, who isn't pro-life in one way? So um, I find that... Uh, a difficult conversation, but people who oppose abortion often call themselves pro-life, and uh, they look at it from the standpoint of how they want to define life. Uh, it's usually related to the issue of abortion, and when they label themselves that as pro-lifers, often they're concerned with um, making sure that a fertilized egg, an embryo, or a fetus um, is is not terminated. So we know that um, they're much, much less concerned about the life of the person who must carry a pregnancy to full term regardless of the circumstances, some of which we talked about, right, regardless of rape or incest or the threat of domestic violence or the health risk that a woman might have with an atopic pregnancy or life-threatening and life-changing genetic conditions. So when I think of uh, people who call themselves pro-life, I also take into consideration that they often do not support public policies that support parents, families, and children to ensure that they have access to what it takes to bring a life into this world, access to care, safe housing, sufficient nutrition, good education, safety. So um, I think, you know, 
Under the term anti-abortion is a more accurate way to describe people who say they are um, a pro-life. Anti-abortion versus pro-life. Yeah, I really do. That's, that's really what they're talking about. Well, Iris, tell me where this whole notion came about that men can make decisions that have everything to do with the woman's body. Well, now that's a big question. <laughs> so I know it is, but yeah. at the end of the day, that that's what yeah, I don't that's understand. That's what it is about. Yes, yes. That is what this is all about. It is, uh, you know, as you say, in the story you gave of your friend, the man can walk, um, you know, away. Or, But it's it's less about men and women. It really is about because there are many uh, so-called pro-life people who are women. It really is about an authority, a political authority, um, or a, a strong uh, willingness to invest your, uh, civil, your civil uh, uh, opportunities of voting and um, exercising that right to make a move that is definitely anti-abortion, to make sure that it is preventing people from making decisions about their own life. That's what it's really about. And it happens so easily now because when you think about, uh, we have both in the um, local courts, in state and, and federal district courts, and now in the Supreme Court, we have a body of decision makers and lawmakers who can exercise their attitude about autonomy of body and pass it into legislative law, as in Texas, um, can make decisions in the courts when those those types of laws are challenging. And now, you know, with cases in front of the Supreme Court, could actually, it was the Supreme Court that finally nailed the legal right to abortion across the country. And so now it's perhaps you know, considering, and we think it is definitely considering, the ending of um, Roe v. Wade. So it's a very precarious situation that we're in, and the people who bear the um, the most burden on this is the person who has to bring a child into this world that they are unprepared for, that they don't want and perhaps they can't support. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we want to just talk about the basics in terms of education, where we've been, where we are now. We're going to start with Roe v. Wade when we come back on the window. Okay. We are back on the window. We've been talking about reproductive rights with Iris Harvey, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Greater Ohio and Planned Parenthood Advocates of Ohio. So let's talk about the current state of abortion in the United States. If you could give us a very quick crash course, and I say very quick because it's complex legislation, very quick crash course on Roe v. Wade and what's happening now with that. Okay. So, um, similar to your uh, description before, prior to Roe v. Wade, abortion was legal under certain circumstances in 20 states and legal outright in four states. So, for instance, 
uh, in Hawaii, Alaska, Washington, and New York. It was outright. Um, so in 1973, a case came to the Supreme Court. Roe v. Wade um, was the court title, and it affirmed that access to safe and legal abortion is a constitutional right, right? Um, and it, it answered the question up to what point, and that point was 22 weeks of gestation or what is considered um, uh, the viability point. And, and so for all of these decades since then, abortion has been uh, accessible and available to people under these circumstances. But now what we see, um, weight is at risk, uh, because even though 80% of Americans don't want to see it overturned, we now have um, both a Supreme Court and state uh, legislators that are indeed um, overturning. So this rush of, um, there have been like 300 different pieces of the legislation uh, across the country introduced in, and um, with the goal of limiting uh, access to abortion, making it more difficult, stigmatizing it, and, um, you know, in some cases outright, outright um, banning it. And so what we have now is three Supreme Court justices as well um, in the, the, the national court, as well as over 200 judges on the, the federal appellate and district courts who were also appointed by Trump and confirmed by the Senate. And many of them have records that are unfriendly to sexual and reproductive rights, and uh, they can be there for life. So we have a case uh, that is related to the... Um, uh, a 15-week ban uh, on abortion in Mississippi that is being appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court has said that they will address the question of when does the state have the right to define viability. So Roe v. Wade said up to 22 weeks, right, that that's viability and safe and and, um, legal. And so this Supreme Court decision that is being debated and reviewed now and probably will have a decision in June uh, is one that we truly believe will threaten um, access to abortion and possibly uh, turn overturned Roe v. Wade. And so what we know is that what that will mean is that across the country, the states will decide whether or not um, you can have an abortion. And on a nationwide basis, we believe that within like three years, because it takes a while for legislation uh, to happen, across the country, there could be 28 million women, people, who are living in a state where they have no access to abortion. So this is a really big deal. So if it's turned over to the states, for example, help us understand what's going on in Texas right now. (sighs) I have to take a big sigh, right? (laughs) So um, Texas just passed a six-week ban, right? And the six-week ban is the first of its kind because what it does it empowers, so let me first say for our audience, just to make sure, most women do not know that they are pregnant 
uh, before six weeks. Most people just do not know that. And so when you put that time frame on there, it makes it impossible for someone to exercise their decision about whether or not to have an abortion if they don't know uh, that they're they're, um, pregnant. So the six-week ban is the first of its kind, and it's empowering and encouraging private citizens, maybe your neighbor, a distant relative, an abusive partner, or even a stranger, to sue anyone who helps or intends to help someone else get an abortion after six weeks. So as of this point right now, an abortion in Texas is out, totally illegal, not able to have. But um, a citizen is empowered to stick a claim or to sue anybody with the possibility of getting a $10,000 bounty because they have written the legislation in such a way that the courts cannot take judicial power over this piece of legislation. Local, state, federal courts, none of them. And many of us who are in the reproductive health and uh, rights Um, movement took a case to the Supreme Court and said, this is ridiculous. An Uber driver can be sued for $10,000. And the Supreme Court said they wouldn't decide on it. So right now, it's illegal to have an abortion in Texas, and it is legal for anyone in the United States to pick somebody and decide that they enabled an illegal abortion in Texas and taken the court to seek $10,000 bounty and legal fees um, if they lose. So I could decide that I heard my neighbor was going to have an abortion, and rather than going about my own business that day, I could decide that it was my responsibility and now my right in Texas to go after that neighbor. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay, so that's madness. My mother, in her um, infinite um, non-medical wisdom, used to say that outlawing abortion doesn't mean women wouldn't have abortions. It means women wouldn't have safe abortions, and that wealthy women would go to the next state, or go out of the country, or go to someone who is on the side, who's well-versed in how to do safe abortions and get an abortion, and poor women would go to back alleys. Your mother was a very, and is a very wise woman. That's exactly it. What this does is, because the law will be spotty, right, it makes it possible for anyone who has the economic means to get an abortion to get it. For those who don't, and, you know, one of the things we found is that, for instance, in Texas, Um, There was a point during COVID that um, 18 days when abortion was illegal in Texas. And so we monitored uh, how women who needed an abortion did. And they were traveling over 250 miles to get to a state where they could get abortion. They weren't flying. They didn't have the money to fly, right? They were driving if they could. Now, what does that mean? It means someone has to take care of the kids, right? You have to have the money and the gas and the transportation. And on the other side, most states have put in some type of a waiting period. You get your, you come in, you get your counseling, education. Some states require you to see, to have an ultrasound, to hear, 
totally um, non-medical, you know, threats about uh, abortion gives you cancer and things of that nature. Then you have to come back a day or two, and have, so you have to have hotel fare, days off from work. So it absolutely does answer to the question who is hurt the most by this. It is indeed low-income people. It is indeed black black people, women, and, and men of color because it hurts the economy. It, it hurts the family's economy. Um, it hurts people who... Uh, their immigration status, right? Maybe they don't have a car. We work on them into our health centers, whether or not they are a citizen. But you may be frightened. You've settled in Texas or, or someplace where you've built a little life, but you don't have a green card. You don't cross borders nowadays. I do want to be sure that we are devoting some time to um, to organizations and people who who have dubbed themselves to be right to life. So I have a statement here and then several other comments. But first, I'm going to start with a statement from Ohio Right to Life. And um, they... Um, say that they work through legislation and education to promote and defend innocent human life from conception to natural death. And they say, Ohio Right to Life is extremely encouraged to learn that the United States Supreme Court chose to not block Texas' heartbeat law. Babies in Texas now have new historic protections, and we believe that soon babies across our nation will be afforded those same protections when the court overturns Roe v. Wade for good. Abortion victimizes women and kills children. It has no place in a society that strives to give every human being a chance at a free and full life. This moment serves as an important reminder that America is pro-life and that regardless of the obstacles put before us, we will end abortion. So that's a statement from Ohio Right to Life. I will also paraphrase a comment that was made by Texas governor when he was interviewed about the fact that if my understanding is correct, that New Texas heartbeat law does not provide protection from people impregnated through rape or incest. And his comment on that was that um, Texas also was determined to get all the rapists off the streets. He didn't really have a response for someone who said, gee, what if the rapist isn't on the street? What if the rapist is in your home, referring, of course, to situations That's where like there incest, might isn't it? be um, incest. There's also um, recently, and I'm trying to pull up exactly who said that, but that um, what this new law means is that women can say no to sex, that it will make um, women more likely to control their reproductive lives. Here's a statement, and it was made by Jonathan Mitchell, who was who played a pivotal role in designing the Texas law. And he says, quote, women can control their reproductive lives without access to abortion. They can do so by refraining from sexual intercourse. One can imagine a scenario in which a woman has chosen to engage in unprotected sexual intercourse on the assumption that an abortion will be available to her later. But when this court announces the overruling of Roe, that individual can simply change their behavior in response to the court's decision if she no longer wants to take the risk of an unwanted pregnancy. I will stop there and ask for your thoughts on these statements. You know, these statements are, are so ridiculous, it's, it's hard to respond to, and it almost sounds like that old-fashioned thing, if you just keep your legs closed, your legs closed, your knees closed, and you're dressed down, nothing will happen to you. Um, so it's, it's a little bit uh, ridiculous. I, You know, going back to the statement um, and the... Uh, 
sense that they uh, the right to life is saying that they feel empowered by the fact that the state, the Supreme Court legislators are um, recognizing this. Um, one of the reasons that they can do this is because over the last 10 years, what we've had in this country is incredible gerrymandering of legislative districts. We just had this in Ohio, right, where one party is able to have a majority in terms of the votes and the seats in the House without getting a majority of the, the vote of the populace. And so this isn't really about uh, what the American people want, because we know that when you ask the American public, they overwhelmingly support a person's right to body autonomy and to make their own choice. Um, so I don't want to give credence to uh, their thought. Uh, I think, you know, if indeed they wanted um, people to have access to uh, contraception and not to have a pregnancy, they would teach sex education in the schools, right? They would say, here's how you protect yourself. Here is, is what you can do not to have a pregnancy, but we don't do that. And they often take with their laws, build into their laws, ways that eliminate the opportunity for people to make decisions about preventing pregnancies. So you can't have it both ways. That's, that's my personal commentary about it. I got a little excited here. Sorry about that. We only have a few minutes left, and it, and it is a very passionate topic for everyone. And I want to be sure that we also speak out on behalf of what we've heard from men when we say that, gee, it's a woman's right to choose and that type of thing. So I noticed that the statement that I just read from the person who believes that women will now be more cautious in, in keeping their legs closed didn't mention men perhaps being more cautious if that's your mindset um, I've also heard people say that along with rights come responsibilities there are very responsible men who want to have a voice in what happens with a child that they may have conceived for those who aren't so mm -hmm. responsible this might be a good time to step up to the plate in that regard as well as the fact that much of our, our government policy is still dominated by men who we hope gain a better understanding of the issues. Okay. Everyone impacted, not only based on gender, but also based on the income and beliefs. And so we're going to need to wrap up today. And again, this is a conversation that could go on for a while today, but is definitely going to go on for a while in our country. We hope today that our listeners have been informed, at least about the work of organizations like Planned Parenthood in terms of educating in health care as well as this issue of abortion so you can at least make an informed decision. And I have to bring this point up to Iris. The Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has been one of the um, uh, advocates for um, right to life. The, in the embryo being mm -hmm. a real person. But it seems very strange to me that some of their monarchs and their high priests are going to jail for molesting little boys mm -hmm. or little girls or little girls little girls right so i just had to put that out there just as a by yeah. observer like you, 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 that's a that's sure. a poisoned argument 
Well, yeah, well, Kiko, in any um, one religion, the Catholic Church does have a strong position. Uh, but we know that many religious groups in America are undecidedly pro-choice. In recent polls, there have been um, like 82% of Jewish people, 68% of Hindus, 82% of Buddhists, 55% of Muslims. People think about when does life begin, and they think about the family. And I guess, I know we're going, so I would leave you with this thought, that most American families want two children. So to achieve this, the average person who can, can get pregnant spends about five years pregnant, postpartum or trying to become pregnant and that means three decades more than three quarters of her reproductive life is trying to avoid an unintended pregnancy so therein is the complexity that's a lot of attention that a person has to give and um, I think abortion is one method of planning your family, but it's not the prominent method, and it's not the only method, and everyone should have a choice of how to decide when, when, and how to have a child. That would be my parting thought. Thank you to Iris Harvey, President and CEO of Planned Parenthood of Great Ohio and Planned Parent Advocates of Ohio for joining us on the window. To our listeners, please join us next week for our 30th show. We're going to talk about... Uh, politics isn't everything <laughs> politics everything's politics thank you iris thank you. thank you thank you in person someday i can't wait thank All you right. bye-bye bye bye everyone